Peter, yes. It is such a pleasure to meet you at last. I've been looking Likewise. all week. We've been we've been um, completely immersed in the in the work, the thought, the pulse of Peter Zion. <laughs> <laughs> and I think probably my readers know what your books say, or if they don't, they're not paying any attention. I, so I think we can just go right. I don't think you need to do the usual spiel where you explain your basic. Right. So I think we can go right to the interesting stuff. So first, welcome to the Cosmopolitan Globalist. We have here with Thank us you. the eminent geopolitical analyst, Peter Zahn. Is it Zahn or Zion? Zion, you always Zion. Say that, right. And um, today we're going to talk about his thesis that the world is coming to an end um, and that it's going to be really, really bad. And, but I wanted to start pretty much in the order that I've been, <laughs> I've been writing about this. I wanted to start with your approach to predicting the future. And particularly, I wanted to know, I'm going to put the question right out there. Great men are great forces of history. Yes. It's a lot of both. Uh, let, let's start with the forces of history because there's no getting around that. Uh, you, you change the way the world works in the post-World War II environment. You, you allow everyone to play. And the whole idea of globalization is that you don't need to militarize your economy to do things. And that allows you access to the entire planet. And that, that had never existed before. And that brought us everything about our globalized world, connections and finance and energy, manufacturing and multi-step and all, all of it hmm. is from that decision that the Americans made. However, you play that forward um, and watch the demographic situation change. So as you urbanize, you have fewer kids, you do that for 70 years. It's not that you're running out of children. That happened 30, 40 years ago. We're now running out of adults, mm -hmm. which means we're now at this moment where the old rules of the game are giving way. And the rules of whatever's next have yet to be created. And in this historical moment, this decade, maybe two decades, everything is in flux. And now is the time when the great men and women of history will leave their mark because not all countries have all of the assets and positioning and demographic structure resources that are the same as the others. And the ability to differentiate is huge. And so as events like the Ukraine war really build steam and break down or empower certain countries, this is when leaders can really leave their mark yeah. uh, this transition period allows certain places, led certain ways, to establish a new normal. And I think it's too soon to say that anyone is in particular going to be successful at failure or fail at that, although we're probably going to know within the next few months. But I've got to say, um, the Biden administration has unimpressed me to this point, but now they're actually putting a few things in place that are likely to long, long outlast them, whether that's good or bad, of course, where you are. What are you thinking of in particular? One of the key tenets of globalization was the idea that the United States would trade security protection and economic access in exchange for allowing the United States to write your security policies vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and the Cold War. So as long as you let us call the big shots, you can have everything else that you need to run a modern economic system and you don't have to fight for it. What we're seeing with the Biden administration is just the first piece of that. The security agreements are back on track, right. but nothing about the economic access is. So it's, I, I say this in a lot of places and it gets me in trouble everywhere. The, the two most similar foreign policy presidents we've ever had are Donald Trump and Barack Obama. And the two most serious economic policy presidents we've ever had are Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Two most serious or, or similar? Uh, sorry, uh, similar, similar. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with you about the similitude between Obama and Trump. And I don't, I, people don't see it, but it is definitely there. Um, in the United States, for the first time since the 40s, we have an industrial policy. Now, we can argue whether that's more or less efficient, but at this time in history, having an industrial policy to complement what is going on with the global breakdown, that's really good timing. And um, as the Americans are off to say, overkill is underrated. So just the amount of money that is being thrown at this is huge. And even if three quarters of it is wasted, that is going to be enough to remake the American industrial space in a relatively autarkic direction at a time when global supply chains are breaking. That's, that's fantastic if your goal is national power, which for Biden, just like for Trump, it is. 
what of the post-war thesis that the United States would fare best in a peaceful world and that it was important to secure peace for its own sake on the grounds that lack of peace would inevitably in some way touch the United States? Do you think that we've abandoned that idea completely? Or do you, do you really believe that we never believed that in the first place? <laughs> I think Americans believe that. I think it was right. I still believe that. But the people who believe my way in American policy have now lost in eight straight presidential elections. Well, actually, I should say seven straight. In this last one, we didn't even have anyone in the race. Um, so we, our, our time has passed. And we are going to have to relearn some lessons. The reason we came to that conclusion is the devastation of the world wars was huge. And while it didn't hurt the Americans nearly as much as it hurt the Asians and the Europeans, it was still a Syrian experience for us. Well, it's been two generations and there are not a lot of people who are still alive who remember any aspect of that, certainly not in a personal visceral way. And so we're doing what we do every generation or two and we're shifting foreign policy into a more isolation retrenchment position. I, I uh, the Ukraine agree. war at present hasn't ended that. Mm -hmm. I certainly agree that you can sense that there are no grandparents left telling people why our foreign policy should be the way it has been or the way it was after the Second World War. But don't, do you not think that there are people who have studied it, the institutions are built to serve that, that it will continue in some form, just if nothing else out of out of habit. I mean, you you seem to have a, a United States that just drops off the face off the off the face of the earth suddenly, right about now. And I, I don't see any indication that that's about to happen. There, <coughs> excuse me. There are a lot of people who believe that way. There are a lot of people who have been in position of powers who would like to see that continue. Uh, they were almost to a person Republicans, mm -hmm. and now they're known as rhinos. Uh, so the, the institution that kind of held that uh, institutional zeitgeist, mm -hmm. uh, the Republican Party, is not what it once was. Um, that's not something that I'm personally particularly thrilled with. I mean, I'm not a Republican. I'm an independent. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm at home nowhere. Uh, what's the best way to phrase this? If you look at the sort of progress that needs to be made incrementally in order to maintain this sort of system, mm -hmm. there are kind of two overarching international institutions that really matter. The first is the World Trade Organization to keep chugging along on that effort to keep trade open as, as much as possible. We haven't had a new WTO round since 2001 and that one failed. <laughs> we now have um, every major economic grouping or country uh, moving in a protectionist direction. So the the institutional inertia that I think you're arguing for here, which I normally have thought is a good thing, it hasn't been there for a while. And with the exception of a couple of tactical trade deals that were renegotiated under Trump, which were not minor, we haven't had meaningful progress on the trade front since the W administration. Uh, the second is going to be NATO. Now, NATO is absolutely getting a fresh lease on life. Everyone is supremely motivated at the time. Uh, and in the European space, this has been a godsend because we've just had this security. Disintegration is not quite the, the right word, but definitely an unraveling over the last 15 years. Question, especially the Germans have just had a completely different idea of what security means. I mean, we even had Angela Merkel, who considered herself relatively pro-American, uh, arguing that we shouldn't measure defense in defense. We should measure it in development funds. And from a foreign policy point of view, there's something to be considered there. But from a defense point of view, that was kind of a little wonky. So that has come back from the brink, if you will. But we're just not seeing the mobilization in Europe that would be necessary for this to stick. It's not just that they're heavily reliant upon the United States. It's that the sort of societal shift that is necessary to get us back to where we were during the Cold War in terms of mindset. We just haven't tripped past that yet. There seems to be a general belief, especially in places like Germany, that this is going to stay in Ukraine. And as long as it stays in Ukraine, there is the option of going back to where we were 10 years ago. And I don't think it's really sunk in everywhere yet that uh, that world is gone. Now, yesterday, two days ago, when the nuclear threats became explicit, that that might be enough to push us over. 
uh, we'll see, and we'll know soon. They've been explicit since the beginning, um, and the the uh, in the last forty eight hours, I think, it, from my point of view, it has really amped up a lot. We actually had yesterday when I was uh, flying in from Vancouver uh, an evolution in the uh, the Russian pro war communication because they thought they had expressly threatened Berlin, France, and Stockholm, and the rest. But most people in the West interpreted it as a nuclear threat against Ukraine. And so they went out and had to clarify. And that was a little chilling. Well, I've, I've thought it's pretty chilling since the beginning. But I'm wondering, what exactly would you expect to see if you thought the message was really getting through? Um, would you see... Oh, that, that's pretty straightforward. We need a, at least three NATO divisions in the Central European countries hard up on the Ukrainian border. Um, are and we... if the goal is to really dissuade the Russians and to convince them that this is something where the West is one and the West is going to act and the West is not going to, uh, is going to be ready for whatever's after Ukraine, you have to have troops on the edge. Yeah, I agree. Uh, do you think that our failure to put the troops there or to insist that they be put there is owed to a failure to appreciate the threat or is it owed to, um, well, what do you think is going on with the Biden administration? I think the Biden administration is working with the toolbox that it has. It's, it's a little bit constrained in the United States, not as much as the past three presidents, which is actually, you know, significant progress. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that this is a failure of the Biden administration to act. Um, it's a failure of capacity on the European side. There just aren't a lot of European countries that have forces that are even capable of deployment at this point. So the toolkit that we would have just reflexively reached for in the Cold War, you know, we, we've bit by bit. Uh, denigrated and demobilized that over the course of the last 30 years. Uh, Canada and Germany are probably the best two examples here. They've largely given the Ukrainians most of the equipment that they're capable of giving at this point yeah. because they haven't really built out any of their military capacity since the Cold War ended. So they're, if you want to go to that old conversation of security consumers versus security providers, they're absolutely on the consumer side at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the sort of uh, build out that would be necessary to field troops in those two countries, uh, if they started today, is at minimum a six-month process. Well, we're now in month seven of the war, and it still hasn't happened. It's a little strange that people aren't behaving more as if this is a five-alarm fire. I wonder why they aren't. Do you have any thoughts about that? Just well, let, let's take a page from the Spanish book. By the way, the Spanish have wildly overperformed in this. They're not a border state. They've sent a huge yeah. amount of help to the Ukrainians. Um, the way the Spanish look at this is that security is something that the Americans take care of. Now, that means that you can play fast and loose with the international politics and let the Americans pay the price. Uh, and that's fun. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are a peripheral economy in the far western end of Europe. And if something really does go wrong, the Americans will be there. And there's a degree of trust and belief in that statement that permeates throughout Europe. The thing is, we've had 20 years of the war on terror. Uh, we had the war in Iraq that regardless of whether you thought it was a good idea or a bad idea, the Americans were not exactly thrilled with how the Allies stepped up. Now, we all agree that the Russians are a problem and the Americans are now stepping up, but there's certainly, it's not all water under the bridge. Uh, so when the institution is weaker, when the recent record of collaboration is weaker and six months on, aside from a substantial, admittedly substantial amount of weapons transfers to Ukrainians, no one's really changing anything. They're just waiting for the Americans to act and the Americans are still in their rest, recuperate, rearm, retrain cycle after the wars on terror. Uh, this is something that doesn't necessarily resonate well in Washington. Now, on a foreign policy point of view, the United States are pro is probably more united than at any time since 2002, which considering where our politics have been, wow, thank you, Vladimir Putin, we kind of needed that. Uh, but it's going to take time to build out the stuff that we need. The Russians are clearly seeing this with their military deployments, but the same applies to us. Yeah. Um... What happens if Trump is elected again? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make a prediction on that at this point. Uh, the, the belief in Moscow 
was that if we had a second Trump administration instead of a Biden administration, that in the first year he was going to functionally withdraw the United States from NATO and he could just walk in Ukraine and take whatever he wanted. It wasn't until that didn't go that direction and the javelins started ending up on the front line that the Russians felt they needed to move. If Trump were to come in in a year or two, whoo, the problem with predicting what Trump is going to do is he literally just makes it up as he goes. And anyone who comes into the room with advice or background is somebody he either fires or won't let talk. Mm-hmm. Um, if he stays true to form, if he continues what he did in his first term, I would expect the weapons deliveries to stop on a dime. Now, he's erratic on a good day. So you just, you don't know how that is going to play out. But it was very clear that he personally disliked Zelensky. Mm. Uh, and so I can totally see him doing his normal thing and allowing his personal umbrage to drive policy. Yeah, yeah. In a larger sense, I want to understand. I want to understand, for one thing, why you think China is going to collapse, and why your prediction about this is so different from everyone else's, and where, whether this is a matter of the initial conditions being just slightly different and getting a massively different picture. You start with China's new numbers, and uh, the intelligence community and the UN start with the numbers as they were two years ago. And one of them's got China being the United States' biggest competitor. The other one has China being a very significant country, and you've got it collapsing. What's the difference? I would say most of the world's coming around to my way of thinking, especially over the last six months. Um, let me give you two things. I mean, there, there's a, a, a dozen major reasons that I don't think the Chinese system is going to survive this, this decade. But let me give you the two that are absolutely unassailable. Uh, first of all, China is the third most internationally integrated country in the world after the Germans and the Koreans. They are utterly dependent upon globalized access to raw materials and markets the world over. They import the raw materials, they import the technology, people forget that, that, that piece sometimes, and then they export the finished goods. That does not work without a globalized world, and there is no coalition of countries that can replace the United States as the guarantor of that world. And with the Americans going their own way, that's it. The entire economic model doesn't work. Semiconductors is probably the best space to just to see how exposed the Chinese are. They can't make the high-end or the mid-end chips, and they can't make the equipment to make the low-end chips. They are completely dependent upon tech transfers from the rest of the world in order to sustain that entire industry. And now we have the Dutch, the Danes, the Brits, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Taiwanese, along with the Americans, saying that never again can the Chinese access high-end chips at all. And the question is, what mid-end chips can they have and whether they should be able to have the equipment necessary to make the low-end chips? So we're talking in the course of just the last few months, their access to that space has stopped. The chip space is something, though, they can they can replace. Um, and I don't think so. I mean, if they could make the equipment to make the low-end chips, then there's a conversation to be had. But they can't. They've tried. They can't. What's the obstacle? Uh, they have to get the tech from abroad. And the, the Chinese decision to back the Russians in this war has really changed mindsets in Europe, more so than it has on defense matters, believe it or not. And so if the Americans won't allow the high-end stuff to go, and they can't get the equipment to make the low end, then they are not in that space, except for as we allow dribs and drabs of the technology to transfer. What happens if tomorrow the Chinese wake up and say, we formally condemn Russia's invasion? Now, can we have some chips? Uh, If the Chinese have a significant policy change and kind of sue for peace as part of a globalization 2.0, there's definitely a conversation to be had there. I don't mean to suggest that that aspect of this is past the point of no return. Uh, That and you know that would be really interesting. This is something that the uh, W administration tried back before the 9/11 attacks, trying to bring China into a new revitalized globalized system. Obviously, we all got a little bit distracted about them. But the second problem, unfortunately, is much worse, and that's the demographic situation. According to the Chinese themselves, with the data they're starting to let out, they've overcounted their population by over 100 million people. All of those overcounts were people who would have been born since the one-child policy has been adopted. 
which was uh, 40 years ago, so people 40 and under. And they were already looking at one of the fastest drop-offs in terms of birth rate in human history. Uh, you know, you need 2.1 births per woman to maintain your population. In their metro centers, they're now below 0.7. I mean, th this is faster than the Korean drop-off, and they haven't developed nearly as much as the Koreans have. So if these numbers are true, they're going to lose almost two Americas of population in just the next 30 years. And the average age will be older than the Japanese are now. Uh, this is not something, we don't even have a model That's that we might be able to throw this against. We're sure that this is a bad thing, but we don't even have a model. How do we know what happens when something like that happens? Well, if you're talking about a population that drops by almost half in 30 years and the people that are left are in their 50s and 60s, I, I don't see how that can function. Uh, but we are in an unprecedented times. Uh, I get surprised all the time. Do you think that there's any possibility of technology or productivity gains that could offset this? Well, you might be able, might, 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 mm -hmm. be able to use things like automation to mm -hmm. help on the production side. I think the scale of this is much bigger than that, but right. it's at least theoretically possible. We can kind of get our mind around some possibilities there, but that doesn't solve the consumption problem. Uh, the Chinese still need access to the wider world. I mean, if they if they can keep their output up, they still need a place to sell it. Maybe they can do it overland by rail. To who? To Europe. I mean, to to. Europe is, I mean, over the next 30 years, Europe demographically is right, going so to- They only have to get their stuff to sub-Saharan Africa and keep the economy in sub-Saharan Africa reasonably robust. That's all they have to do, right? If the Africans experience Korean-style growth for the next 30 years, it doesn't even take them a quarter of the way of where they would need to do to be able to sustain that level of consumption. So you're really thinking the only market that could keep China afloat is the United States? Uh, it's the only one of size, certainly. So I mean, the United have, States is kind of done with that. We have all the leverage in this relationship. Why aren't we putting the screws on them to say, you know, we really need your help here with Russia? Well, one, we're not all that organized. Uh, and two, the industrial policy at this point is only a few months old. Now, is it theoretically possible that the United States will force some sort of second phase globalization on the world? Yes. But what made globalization one work is most of the world was devastated. And not only was the American deal good, it was really the only one on the table. I don't think there's a belief at this point that the United States is willing to go that far or cut to the bone that much on economic matters in order to get its way. Uh, the American political system really is in a period of retrenchment, regardless of what happens with Biden and Trump. And the degree of leadership that that would require and the degree of acceptance that the rest of the world would have to generate I don't think that's on deck. Well, if you were able to sit down, say you were an American diplomat and put these facts before the Chinese, I'm sure they would sound very persuasive. So I don't think it really requires sort of an, ex it's not really, it's right there. We don't have to do anything to change the situation. This is, this is the way it is. The United States does have these advantages and it does have this massive market. And given China's demography, this is, your argument is perfectly compelling. It seems that we have the leverage. Why wouldn't we use it? Are you are you saying that these thoughts don't occur to anyone in the administration? Well, they occur to me, but I don't think they occur to everyone in this administration, the one before it, or the one before that. Uh, let me give you two reasons. One, why I don't think the Chinese would go for it, and a second one, why how I would do it if I was, you know, king for a day. Um, the Chinese have degraded into a cult of personality that makes Mao look inclusive. Mm. And they have become hostage to their own ideology. And it's leading to a series of cascading policy decisions across the system. The COVID policy is one of those. <clears throat> and the capacity of the Chinese system to adapt and get out of its own way, at least at the moment, is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, Xi has killed the messenger so many times that there's, it's difficult to get him any real information. And it's only in this last week that he's finally had a face-to-face -face with anyone for the first time in almost three years. Uh, so their ability to move beyond the blind ideology of the propaganda arm is, is seriously constrained at the moment. On the United States side, assuming that the Americans can kind of get their political ducks in a row at home enough to have this conversation, the first step would be to start with the inner family. 
so the, the other Anglo states and the Mexicans, and kind of do a first round NAFTA extension combination security and economic deal. Hmm. The second phase would be to bring in the countries <laughs> that are consolidated already, that have good relations with the United States. Yeah, I just interrupt. What kind of deal beyond NAFTA and and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? You would you would need a formal globalization 2.0 version that fuses economic and security issues into a single governing system. It's and, not national merger, but it's something a lot more formal than than just the Article Five guarantees of. Uh, of NATO and the uh, adjudication systems of NAFTA, something where it's all under one roof and we'd all agree to the ground rules at the same time. So human rights, free enterprise, physical defense, all part of the same association, kind of like what some um, supporters of the European Union would like to see the EU become. And what would be the advantage over our current arrangements in having such a such a Right now, it's very bilateral and it's very ad hoc. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about something that is designed at the end to be a an overarching system, it needs to be together. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about something that is going to be able to bring the Chinese into it, it has to be potent. You're not going to do that with a simple bilateral deal. You're thinking about bringing the Chinese into this agreement as a trade and security agreement. No, not in phase one. No, <laughs> yeah. that sounds very unlikely. Um, I mean, as far as I understand, all the Chinese, it should be incentive enough to give the Chinese access to our market. Why would they need yeah, something? You have to have an enforcement mechanism. And we've learned over and over and over that the Chinese are unwilling to do that unless they are forced. Unwilling to do what? To trade on? on you you have to have the ability for entities outside of China to be able to adjudicate disputes with the Chinese outside of China and have it stick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right now, under pre-existing systems, we sue the Chinese, including at the WTO, the decision is imposed, and the Chinese just move on. That's not how it works if you're going to have a, tr a system that really sticks. You've got to end what has been a relatively exploitive position that the Chinese have taken versus the rest of the world. Right, that's so you're thinking transfer, of creating market this access. You're creating the security and trade nut in order to create the institutions, which then would discipline the Chinese. That seems a somewhat inefficient way of getting to the point you want, which is for the Chinese to say, yes, we want to continue to have access to your market. Uh, no, we're not going to, to continue to call Russia our little brother. I'm not sure I'm following here. Uh... The, the system we, ha we have had for the last <laughs> 25 years, the Chinese have been able to take advantage of it. And that's part of the problem mm -hmm. because they're able to hollow out the economies of a lot of the less developed countries. At the same time, they're able to hollow out the manufacturing base of the more advanced economies. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, the rest of the world has gotten cheap goods and that's about it. And that's one of the reasons why we've had this independent Chinese rise. They've mm -hmm. basically been able to transfer parts of the global system because of the lack of institutions to the Chinese system. And that is what has undermined everything else. That's what's got to stop. I don't think they've done that, though, because they're breaking the rules. They've done that because they've been able they're to- exploiting the rules. Or yeah. Lack thereof. Um, not necessarily. I, I don't see how enforcing rules on, for example, um, intellectual property would change that general trajectory. Generally, the Chinese can compete on cheap labor. I mean, I suppose we could we could insist so they that they can't anymore, but they've been able yeah. to to this point. Yes. Yeah. So this, I mean, with this change, they're not going to be able to do that anyway. Yeah, I mean, well, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure there's any policy change that can save the Chinese at this point. But if the United States is going to go back into a position of de facto subsidizing a lot of the world, mm -hmm. the the baseline understandings have to evolve. And part of that means getting institutions in place that the United States maybe doesn't control, but certainly heavily influences uh, that are enforceable. So if, so suppose you sit down and you're in front of the Chinese ambassador and you say, look, here's the way it is. If you can't sell your goods to the American market, you collapse completely. All we want is um, for you to stop stealing our intellectual property, and we're going to create a special court to adjudicate this. Are you willing to? Are you willing to accept the decisions of this court? What do you think they would say? Well, I dare say the United States is going to have a long list of things that go beyond IP 
Yeah, stop stealing uh, our property and stop using slave labor and um and open your market in all economic sectors and stop intimidating your neighbors. And it's it, it would be the end of the CCP in its current form. Well, if you're right, the alternative for China is total collapse. Yeah. Do you think they understand that? Uh, I think most of the people who were making that argument have been removed from government. That was part of the purges. Right. Um, well, that makes things a little more difficult from the negotiating yeah. point of view, which, which again, you know, kind of brings us back to human beings as opposed to forces. Oh, the worst. I know. They just, <laughs> you never know what they're going to do. Um, is there any chance you're wrong about China's demography? Is there any chance these new numbers don't make any sense either? I mean, that, that, that's definitely the, the question. Um, the fact that the new numbers are coming from the Chinese themselves and not a third party estimate, I think is really telling. Chinese statistics have always been <laughs> a little questionable, mm-hmm. even on the good day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that you've got folks like the Shanghai Academy of Sciences, like openly discussing these issues tells me that it's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there's so little in data that we can trust out of the Chinese system at large. Uh, when they start talking very negatively, it suggests to me that the reality is probably, excuse me, actually significantly worse. Uh, but we're completely reliant on them for the gathering, the interpretation, and the dis- dissemination. So uh, let's assume for the moment that it's only as bad as we thought it was back in 2020. We still have the second fastest aging society in human history after Korea, uh, and we still have the uh, most distorted uh, demographic structure. Right. That means they might have 20 years instead of 10. When you say collapse, you're envisioning the the state dissolving, disintegrating, and people starving in China, breaking into a conjuries of warring tribes of some kind, right? Uh, there's a lot of examples in Chinese history. Of yeah, yeah it down. happens over that, and over again. I think, is the, I think yeah. that is the, uh, the most likely outcome, yes. Um, it doesn't seem to me from reading any document produced by any of the foreign policy or intelligence organs of our government that this is high on their list of anticipated scenarios. Is this just because it takes them a while to catch up with the new numbers or is there some reason that this that they cannot entertain this speculation i think it's both Mm -hmm. (coughs) excuse me sorry i definitely caught something on the plane yesterday oh i'm so glad there's there's Uh, ocean between us (laughs) (laughs) i took a covid test already this morning i'm negative on that take a little bit you can take a little bit to show it yeah i know anyway um so first uh the data is new Mm -hmm. and it is not completely vetted and it's not completely released. So mm-hmm. it's difficult to make long-term projections, especially when you're looking at it from a government point of view until you know what you're working with. So I understand that completely. I don't begrudge them at all. Uh, the second one is a little less, um, little less equilibrium. It, one of the many outcomes of the war on terror is a lot of our long-term intelligence efforts um, dissolved. We've spent 20 years trying to figure out what side of the door the hinges were on this or that building in Fallujah. Mm -hmm. And so we stopped really paying attention to what's happening over the horizon with longer term economic trends. Uh, You do that for 20 years and you lose the capacity. So one of the things that I am working with the U.S. government on is, you know, at least providing a sounding board, even if they disagree with everything I have to say, which a lot of them do. there aren't a lot of people in the United States uh, that are even thinking 10, 15, 20 years out. Mm-hmm. And so kind of a show and tell sort of situation has evolved. When the you say institution... go, ahead. go on, go on, no, go on. Me. The institution that maintains the most overall capacity for thinking is by far the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And for them, China is the boogeyman. That is the justifier for their budget. And so when I come in and say, yeah, you know, they're not going to be there in 10 years, you're probably preparing for the wrong foe. They just kind of have a minor freak out because this has become how they go to Congress to justify their existence at the moment. Now, I see lots of things that the United States military uh, is going to be needed for. Uh, So I I don't take this too seriously. But when I see weapon systems being developed for a very specific conflict that I don't think is ever going to happen, I, I do question them as to whether that is the best use of their time and the resources. But this is an organization of 
millions of people and they need to keep the uh the base story very straightforward for congress because congress does not deal with complexity well and so china 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 is uh the way they do that well the argument you're making isn't a really advanced one you're saying there just aren't going to be enough people they're 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 too old and it's and the second you actually look at those numbers you think yeah there's something to that so what you're describing is an organization with a million people in which no one is saying are you sure that we're directing all this to the right place? It sounds like a a, a brontosaurus, you know, massive body, no brain. Uh, it, could it really be working like that? Could it? Could that really be the way the U.S. works these days? Isn't there anyone who's? I would argue that any large institution is going to have at least some elements of that. So yes, uh, and I don't mean to say this to insult the intelligence of the folks at DoD. Far from it. They're coming out of a weird conflict where they were fighting brush fire wars and occupation conflicts for 20 years. Uh, They're now getting back into the general theme of great power competition. This is a good thing. I just think they're looking at the wrong time frame at the wrong country. That's all. Can you, uh, you know, I, I, you didn't mention it's in any of your books, and I'm just curious to know if you can explain the way we left Afghanistan, if you have some insight into what we were thinking. Oh, it's really not that sophisticated. I mean, obviously it wasn't done the best, but um, it's a landlocked country with poor infrastructure. And the only way we could access it was through other countries that we don't trust, Pakistan and Russia primarily. So with the the, uh, setting up of institutions there was never going to work. Uh, the, The Afghan government that we tried to create was always going to fall. The question was how soon? Now, I don't think anyone saw it coming in, what, six and a half minutes, Uh, but I don't think anyone thought it was going to last more than a year. And so was it ugly when we pulled out and it just dissolved? Yeah, but some version of that was always going to happen, and we had known that for 20 years. And that's one of the reasons why we were there for 20 years, is no president wanted to be there when the Band-Aid was ripped off, because they knew it was going to be an embarrassment the next day or the next month or the next year. So I actually am one of the handful of people who think that Biden absolutely did the right thing in absolutely the wrong way and just cut the cord, because this is something we were never going to be able to save. Now, could some things tactically have been done differently in the last few days, weeks, maybe, but it was always going to lead with a collapse and an embarrassment. Now, the rest of the world fell into two general categories. Uh, on category number one, you had people who wished the Biden administration specifically or Americans in general ill will. And they saw this as American weakness. And that's one of the reasons that Putin felt that he could move, because he thought the Americans would be distracted and incapable for months, if not years. The second category were the allies that actually cooperate strongly with the United States, especially countries like uh, Taiwan or Poland, who are like, oh, thank God, the Americans are finally done with that adventure, and they can actually focus on real things now. And that uh, juxtaposition is part of the explanation for why we've seen the rally and some of the mistakes uh, in terms of the Western allies. A lot of horror among our allies, too, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, no one wanted to see your security guarantor be publicly humiliated. Right. However, that what disintegrated was not the American position. That was being abandoned. That was something different. What was disintegrating was the Afghan system. And now that the Afghan system is broken beyond any hope of repair, and the Americans have been completely disabused of any motion that they could have ever made the place look like Wisconsin, we're actually focusing on real places now. And so for the allies who are willing to look at this from the big picture, this has been an unalloyed net gain. What do you think Biden is thinking with respect to Ukraine right now? Um, why isn't the pace of weapons transfers as fast as it could conceivably be? It seems to me you want to do this as quickly as possible. There's no point in drawing this out. What do you think is 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 the thinking? Is it is it that we just don't have them? Is it that he's worried about triggering Putin's sense of um, that he's that he's in an existential predicament, which he is, but I think it's both. Uh, So let's start with the red line issue. Uh, The Russians have made a number of red lines uh, that have been very Obama-esque. They have not reinforced. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing the bit by bit by bit, upping the ante in terms of volume, in terms of training, in terms of equipment uh, quality, uh, to make sure that we are under that red line. 
uh, when the failed assault on Kiev, when it became obvious that the Russians were completely incapable of doing that. Uh, everyone got really excited in the United States, especially in DOD, uh, until they thought about it. And now they realize that the Russians see this as an existential war for their survival, and they're, they're right. Uh, and, but they're completely incapable of modern warfare. So if we have a direct NATO fight, we know that they will be obliterated, and we will know that nukes are their only recourse. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep the conflict level below a point where that direct fight can happen. So the Ukrainians have to do this themselves. You have to train the Ukrainians on the equipment. So we started with the javelins, we started with the stingers, things that you can carry on your back and fire with minimal training. And bit by bit, we have increased the sophistication of the weapons as they can prove to absorb it. We now have tens of thousands of Ukrainians training in NATO countries on more advanced stuff. They're so very we've built the pipeline and it's getting better every day. And we're now, excuse me, we're now in a situation in parts of Eastern Ukraine where the Ukrainians have a numbers training and equipment advantage. Now, does that mean the Kharkiv offensive can be repeated the 20 times it's necessary to push the Russians out? I think it's too soon to make that conclusion. But we are seeing Ukrainians now with more and better and more accurate uh, artillery support in some of these duels where just two months ago they were outnumbered five to one and they were out artillery 10 to one. That's changed. So I think the pace here even if you're going back to like World War II speeds, this is pretty quick. Now, you initially thought that Kiev was going to fall within a few Six days. Months. How do well, you? Actually, I, I, I said Kiev probably within a month to three, and all of Ukraine three to six. Where were you? What What would you look at in retrospect if you wanted to predict what has actually happened? Where do you think the the prognostication went wrong? <laughs> well. <laughs> Oh my God, uh, that's a long conversation, but we'll, we'll do our best. Okay, uh, I, let me start out by saying it wasn't just me. I was probably one of the more optimistic people out there that the Ukrainians would be able to hold out for a few months. Uh, sense of nationality was weak, training was weak, corruption was high, equipment was poor, equipment was outdated. Uh, everything that we thought we knew about Ukraine, they have overperformed and good for them. On the Russian side, world's second largest military capable of carrying out multiple military operations, not on American scale, but still on different continents simultaneously. And you can literally walk from Russia to Ukraine. Uh, the Russians conquered Ukraine for the first time 300 odd years ago. They never gave it up since until 1991 when their system collapsed. The idea that this was going to be an easy fight, I didn't think was all that controversial. And in fact, at the time it wasn't. Uh, and they were able to capture the Crimea without firing a single shot just eight years ago. So that was kind of the baseline understanding. We now have a much better appreciation of the degree of rot in the post-Soviet system. Uh, and it appears that in the military, it's actually stronger than it is in the civilian infrastructure. Uh, the person who is primarily responsible for that is the defense minister, Shoigu, who has been a personal friend of Putin going back to his time in East Germany. Uh, he has probably siphoned off a quarter of the defense funds for him and his cronies specifically, and he's created a culture of corruption that goes all the way down to the enlisted officer. So we now know that most of the money that the Russians have thrown at the rearmament program was simply stolen. So they are now using equipment that dates back to the 60s, and they seem to be, at the moment, so incapable of even making artillery shells, which this is an artillery force that's supposed to be the biggest in the world, that they're bringing in equipment from North Korea that in many cases is in excess of 40 years old. I don't know how familiar you are with physical chemistry when it comes to explosives, but that's really bad. An artillery shell is an explosive strapped to a second explosive that's a propellant that you put in a tube under high pressure. And so old stuff just blows up in the barrel and we're seeing a lot of that. So we are possibly seeing Russia revert to a pre-industrial military. Mm. Mm. Now- You think their nuclear weapons still work? Oh my God, I have no idea. That's part of the problem here. Uh, <laughs> you would think that if anything works, it would be their artillery and their nukes. Well, their artillery doesn't work anymore, or at least not one, how it used to. And we just have this massive Soviet arsenal that they're pulling out of mothballs. 
that hasn't been maintained appropriately. And a lot of the nukes fall into that category too. Uh, the, the, the high-end nukes were supposed to be the Iskanders, and we've now seen that the Russians have already used over two-thirds of what they had, and most of them missed. So it's become a black box when it comes to the high-tech stuff. What they're using, they don't have a lot of, and what they're using doesn't really work very well. So yeah, the nukes are a question point. Uh, does this mean that the Russians can't win? No, 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 no. The, the, just the sheer number of forces that the Russians are able to potentially mobilize are huge. But none of them are they trained. They can pull it off. They're not trained. They, they, um, logistics aren't going to improve just because there are more human beings involved. No, but, but all of those problems, totally legitimate problems. That has defined the Russian military going back to the beginning. They throw bodies at something until it breaks. Now, in break. half of their wars, that works. And in half of their wars, that does not work. I think it's too soon to say which one we're in right now. I agree it's too soon to say, but um, some initial signs, maybe it's just optimism on my part, some initial signs suggest it's the other kind, the first world war kind of situation. Yes. Uh, I mean, is this the first world war or Crimea or is this world war two? Uh, at the moment, it's looking a lot like the Crimean conflict, and the Russians lost almost a million troops in that fight before they finally gave it up. Yeah. Um, do you, when when you look at a situation like this, how much time do you spend asking yourself what's going on in Putin's head? Do you feel that the situation is is determined is so determined by physical factors like geography and, and military capability that it's no point in it? Or do you, do you spend some time trying to decide what kind of person is Vladimir Putin? What does he think? I think we've had a pretty good idea of how Vladimir Putin thinks going back all the way to the very beginning. I mean, this is a guy who was, his first action as prime minister was to triple down on the war in Chechnya. Uh, he believes that violence is a means to an end. He doesn't like revel in violence for violence's sake. You know, this is not Stalin. Uh, he's also not as smart as Stalin. But the idea that the coherence of the Russian system is his first and only priority is something he has not wavered on from the beginning. Now, he will use tactics to achieve that, that, of course, put most of Russia's neighbors in huge danger. That is not unique to him. That has been part of the Russian government mindset going back to the czars and like the early czars. So when it comes to the specifics and the tactics, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, the problem, from my point of view, is the overarching strategy. Because while he has not isolated himself to the degree that Xi in China has, he really only has six people who have access to him anymore. And three of them, Medvedev and Shoigu, are utterly incompetent. Uh, that only leaves three people. Who, who are the it, three people who you think have access to him? Uh, Igor Sachin, who is the chairman of Rosneft, who is, you know, energy and influence. Uh, Petrushev, who is the ideologue. And... Um, uh, Sorry, I'm drawing a complete mind blank all of a sudden. Oh, the finance minister. Uh, that's it. Uh, so there's no one in the security services, except for Petrushev indirectly, um, who can have an open, honest conversation with him. He, he has become in many ways a little bit like Donald Trump and that he insists that his people lie to him. Mm -hmm. And so even if he is brilliant and even if he never makes a mistake, He's not getting the full suite of tools that are necessary to run this war. Well, who's bringing him the news that the Russians, that the, the military has collapsed in Kherson and that... That is Shoigu's job. Shoigu, yeah. Um, so does, I wonder, does he think, well, there's something wrong with my operating assumptions here, or does he have someone who he blames for it? That that would be the logical, responsible adult in the room thing to think. Uh, I don't have access to know if that's what he's going through, but you would expect if he comes to that conclusion that there would be a purge at the top and at a minimum, a significant rearrangement of personnel. We've not seen that. I'm wondering whether he believes his own bullshit to the extent of thinking that this is not a problem with the Russian military. This is because the collective West has flooded the region with its with its, um, you know, its voodoo weapons. And they, of course, the Ukrainians couldn't do anything like this on their own. There must be, there must be tons of Western. 
that is probably Petrusha speaking that in his ear. Mm -hmm. And um, how it does sort of lend itself to the idea of escalate to de-escalate because that would be just that would be part and parcel of their strategy there, especially <laughs> once they declare that uh, the the so-called independent republics are actually part of Russia. I, I don't think de-escalation is in the cards anytime soon. Uh, the Russian periphery is very difficult to defend unless it's a forward defense. Mm -hmm. And so from the Russian point of view, it's not just that they need Ukraine and all of Ukraine. It's need, they need the next band of countries beyond it. <laughs> and the only thing that would be worse in a situation of demographic collapse that the Russians are dealing with than not launching this war would be to launch it and fail it. So they've launched it. It's not going great. They're going to double, triple, and quadruple down until they have nothing left. Russia historically fights until it cannot fight any longer. It has never backed down from a war without at least a half a million battlefield deaths. And at most, we're looking at 70,000 right now. So, all right. So if you're the American president, what do you do? How do you handle uh, you, you know, I always, I have not been a fan of the last five guys in the White House. Mm. I got to say that on this topic, I think Biden has hit it about right. Mm. You rally the allies as much as possible. You put delicate but unending pressure on the country that matters the most, Germany, uh, to embarrass it until it, at a minimum, accedes, and the Germans are acceding. You would like them to become more involved, but I think Biden is old enough that he has a good enough reading on German history that you don't want to push him too far, because that is a different problem. Mm -hmm. um, and you, bit by bit, increase the flow, increase the training, uh, and whatever absorptive capacity the Ukrainian forces have, you fill it as soon as you can. And I think that's what they're doing. So if we're saying that Biden has, I agree with you, who has handled the biggest foreign policy crisis since, at least since the Cold War, possibly since the Second World War, with reasonable plum, this is a very solid endorsement for Biden, actually. Um, I mean, there are a lot of other things the Biden administration are doing that I just think is that stupid. Uh, but on this one, yes. Well, doesn't sound like an America that's checking out. It actually sounds as if there's just some sort of reserve, some sort of residual capacity to, to handle this. But it looks different. The whole idea of globalization was that security and economics were in a bit of a package. Mm -hmm. All we're seeing right now with the Biden administration is the security aspect. All the trade sanctions from Trump are not just still in place. They've been, in, they've been doubled down on. They've been institutionalized. Mm -hmm. With the exception of the dispute between the EU and the US on Airbus, all of those trade disputes are still there too. So we are, I just realized that I don't even have my name on it. <laughs> yeah. You're not talking here about a globalized world. You're talking about a unipolar security arrangement where the United States holds almost all of the cards and makes all of the decisions and goes its own way on economic issues. If in many ways for the rest of the world, that is potentially even worse than an America that is simply checked out. Is the EU actually putting any pressure on the US to bring down the, the protectionist barriers? Well, of course, the commission is doing what the commission does in negotiating it, but uh, they're not getting any traction whatsoever. And there has not been a huge amount of political capital spent by any of the capitals uh, of the member states to do it at all. Uh, the, the two countries that matter the most, of course, in that would be Berlin and Paris. Paris is functionally comfortable with a degree of economic nationalism because that's their standard operating procedure. And the Germans may have taken a different position. But remember, this government only started in January and the war started in February. So they've been a little bit occupied. Hmm. Uh, the country that we would normally turn to if our goal was to de-escalate the trade tensions would have been the UK. But with Brexit, that's gone. Yeah, That just leaves the Dutch. And the Dutch don't have the leverage that is necessary to force the rest of the EU to pick up a topic, much less run with it. Um Do you think that the, the Biden administration seriously intends to keep these barriers up or is it just a matter Forever. of had gotten around to to taking them down no, it's, they, they, they've been codified uh he like i said trump and biden from an economic point of view are very similar they're both economic nationalists uh this is the new normal for american policy i wonder i wonder um like i don't I said, know. people who believe my way we're lost well 
I'm not seeing that this so far is catastrophic for Europe. I mean, it, it, it's only it only touching certain industries. The winter hasn't come yet. Um, and Europe still can do plenty of trading with other European countries. I don't think they're that dependent on these in these industries in the United States on the U.S. market, maybe. Uh, uh, there, the, the vulnerability is there, but you're right that at the moment, the center is holding. Mm-hmm. Um. How about the energy situation? I was I was intrigued by the suggestion that Norway could could somehow manage to get enough oil out to prop up the UK. Do you see that's possible? The UK, yes. Europe, no. Uh, they did find a few new fields over the last few years that are proceeding apace. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is the time to target. These these projects take years to bring online. And the ones from five years ago now are starting to produce. So you can get incremental increases. And if you double investment, which is probably what we're going to be seeing over the next five years, you can see that those flows continue and even enlarge. Uh, but that's nowhere near enough to replace what we're going to be losing from the Russian space. And remember, in energy, we've seen a two-thirds drop-off in global investment into petroleum and natural gas production. Uh, that takes years to manifest. We're seeing the early stages of that in Europe now. Um, if we flip the switch on new investment today, we will not feel that in any meaningful way within three years, probably closer to eight. So the drop off that we've seen in global supplies from the Ukraine war, this is just the very beginning of a decade transition. What would the US have to do to replace the missing fossil fuels in Europe? Uh, the United States, the, the primary issue for Europe is not going to be oil, it's going to be gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the United States is in a glutted natural gas system historically because of the Shell Revolution, but we've increased our demand for natural gas by half over the last 15 years to absorb it all. That's one of the reasons why natural gas prices are higher in the United States than they've been for a long time. If you start talking about sending another 15, 20 BCM of natural gas to Europe, which is the scale that we would need to do to make a difference, um, that would almost unify European and American natural gas prices, and that is not on the table. Uh, Just the build out of the infrastructure in order to avoid that sort of price increase in the United States, which would be completely politically unsustainable, uh, is not something we can do in less than a decade. I'm not sure I fully understand why it would send prices skyrocketing like that. Um, I mean, fungible commodity. Natural gas, anytime you've got an inelastic uh, commodity market like natural gas, where, you know, if you get 90% of it, 10% of you is screwed and you have to decide what to shut down. Uh, You take pricing from the marginal supplier and the marginal demand point. And in the case of Europe, they've lost one of their baseline suppliers in the Russians, and they're replacing it with all marginal suppliers. So any individual one of these marginal suppliers now is setting the price, and that's why you're seeing natural gas prices that are five to ten times what they were just in January. In the United States, our baseline material supplier was so huge, it was waste gas coming out of the shale fields, that we traditionally, for the last 15, 15 has it been 15? Since 2007? Yeah, 15 years. Uh, we've had natural gas in the $2 to $4 range, when in Europe it's been in the $5 to $10 range. Yeah. You guys are now dealing with 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are now dealing with nine um, because we are becoming a marginal supplier to the European market. For us to become a baseline supplier just takes more than we have without a massive price exposure or a massive infrastructure build out that you don't do in two or three years. So basically the, the way it's working now is we are practicing a form of gas autarky. A bit, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, because I've been wondering why we haven't been trying to compensate for that to hold the alliance together, but it sounds as if there's really good economic reasons not to. Yeah, it's you can't replace this big of a supplier in a short period of time unless and less and less you are willing to consider other forms of fuels at large scale. So really the solution, if that's the right phrase here, is at least a two to three year build out of coal and nuclear across the entire continent. Well, the solution is nuclear. The solution to all of it is nuclear. (laughs) (laughs) Nuclear is great for electricity, but natural gas is not just for electricity. It's also an industrial input. It is the base of the entire German economic model. Right, petroleum, so, chemicals. Unless you can find a way to 
bring it in at low cost. And I don't see how that's even physically possible, much less theoretically. Or, I'm sorry, I don't see how it's theoretically possible, much less physically. We are talking about the end of the German economic model over the next 12 months. Uh, that will have its own series of consequences. Yeah, downstream everywhere in Europe. Um, in the United States, one thing that you don't really spend much time dwelling on, perhaps because it's just too depressing, is the United States <laughs> political dysfunction. And I'm wondering to what extent it is it looks to you so politically dysfunctional as to, to some ways, make your prediction about the United States less rosy. In, in, can well, we pretty... get a political hyperpower, political and economic hyperpower without a functional government? Sure. So um, in many ways, culturally, the United States is very well adapted to change, and that keeps our economic transitions constantly adjusting. So we don't usually have these big shakeouts like you will have in Europe. But politics, politics, we do the opposite way. We don't have uh, party lists. You don't vote for a party in the United States. You vote for a specific candidate who is running in a specific district to represent a specific set of constituents, and they need one more vote than whoever comes in second. That means our parties are relatively weak, but the individuals within our parties are relatively strong. And that manifests as a series of factions within each individual party. And those factions rise and fall based on shifts in demographics and technology and economic exposure. Uh, oh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, which means that every once in a while, the factions don't just rise and fall within the party, they jump ship, hmm. or new factions rise, or factions die. In the last 30 years, we have had the rise of globalization and the fall of globalization, the rise of China, now the falling of China, the rise of the baby boomers, now the retirement of the baby boomers, the information revolution, social media. It, it makes sense that the factions are going to be moving around a lot right now. Hmm. Every time that happens, America looks like it's about to fall apart. But all it is, all it is, is politics reshuffling into a new form that's more stable and appropriate for the age that we're actually in. This is the seventh time that we have done this. I have no doubt that we will get through it, but damn, it is an awkward experience. And if you look back to the times that we've done this before, say in the 1920s, the fall of the Whigs, or the rise of the Democratic Republicans, it always looks like it's the end because it is the end of the party system, but then a new party system comes out. So I, I'm not to the point yet where I feel confident enough to predict what the new party structure is going to look like. Uh, at the moment, the Democrats are in a state of disintegration and the Republicans have shed their national security voters, their business voters, their fiscal voters, and it's just a cultural conservative core. It's big, it's significant, but it's not particularly stable. So we may get a third party briefly, but one of the three will then die within a couple presidential cycles. Uh, this is the seventh time we've done it. It usually takes seven to 12 years. We are now in year six. So we know we have at least one more presidential cycle to suffer through before we get to whatever's next. Mm -hmm. In that time, it's difficult for the United States to focus on anything else, especially abroad. So the fact that the Biden administration has been able to do anything coherent uh, in foreign affairs, particularly at the scale of what's necessary uh, for the Ukraine war, again, has my respect. Certainly doesn't seem as if anyone is thinking coherently about the border with Mexico or um, our immigration policy, which I agree with you. I think that is the most important issue um, and the one in which Americans seem least capable of thinking, thinking it through in a, in a, in a sensible way. Um, where do, you, where, do you, where do you think that's going? Do you think there's going to be a point where we can talk about this in a reasonable way? We'll get there, but this is, this is an issue <clears throat> that has inflamed Americans independent of the political system for quite some time. Mm -hmm. But I actually am hopeful that this time is different. Now, why? Donald Trump. Now, I'm not a fan. There are a lot of things that I think he did that were just atrocious. And I think he, as an ex-president, is um, not a particularly good human being. However, one of his seminal achievements, not just economically, strategically, or as president, but for American culture, was the renegotiation of the NAFTA accords and the redefinition within the American political right of the role that Mexicans play in the United States. 
What most people forget in the United States and abroad is that Mexicans are social conservatives and they are rapidly moving over to Trump's interpretation of the Republican Party, which means that in the American right, Mexicans are now part of the family. And that change in identity is hard to do, but Trump made it happen. So when people are looking at the border now, there is a recognition in the United States that Mexico is not part of the problem here, that these are Central Americans and they're not part of the family. And you know that's its own issue and its own problems. But when you have the group in the United States that has been the most opposed to migration, suddenly thinking of Mexicans as normal people, that's a big step forward culturally. And that's where we are now. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. All right, now, final words on political forecasting in general. How well can we do it? And what do you need to know to be able to do it? <laughs> political forecasting is hard. And so, yeah, excuse me. Uh, I try not to do very much of it. I know geopolitics. I do deal with issues where the baseline materials and the baseline information hasn't changed in decades and sometimes centuries, sometimes millennia. And so there's a pattern to follow. And you know that infrastructure is going to be easier to build in flat areas than mountains. You know that water transport is going to be more efficient than land transport. And you basically build a map. And then you look at other maps. And you use that to kind of suss out what has to happen. The hard part of geopolitical forecasting is figuring out when it is going to happen. So the rise of the United States, easy. Disintegration of the European Union, easy. Is it going to happen this year? Hard. Uh, that is one of the advantages of books, is that they are a repository and it doesn't all have to happen next Tuesday. Disintegration of the European Union, why do you think it's inevitable? Uh, well, let's start with the demographic situation. Every country in Europe uh, is has aged past the point of demographic reconstitution with a few exceptions. France is at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Second, uh, because of that, the EU has kind of devolved into an export union. So it is now dependent upon the ability of, almost to a Chinese degree, of getting raw materials in and getting the physical exports out. And then third, uh, because of the way the Americans ran globalization, we actually did encourage the European continent, to the most part, to give up uh, security as one of its guiding lights, because in the past that had led to a series of wars that ultimately we had to come in and settle. And so when I say that the Europeans have not really stepped up to the plate for Ukraine, I don't necessarily mean that as a condemnation. In many ways, that's a feature, not a bug, of the way the Americans designed the post-Cold War order. But that means that the Americans have to remain engaged day to day in order to keep the European system going in its current form strategically and in terms of economics. And I don't think that's a good bet moving forward. Peter, you're sickening before my eyes. I can see it. Your eyes are getting glassier and redder. I think <laughs> I let you go rest. I could... Well, I I've got to be on stage here in about an hour and a half, so that's going to have to wait a little um, bit. But it's nothing that cough syrup and coffee can't fix. Yeah, I think you need an antihistamine. I think you're 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 visibly yes. sickening, and I don't want to be responsible for killing you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank no you. No problem. So it's been a pleasure. Fascinating. Um, I could I could keep asking you questions for a very long time, but maybe you just tell me that you'll come back. You'll come back and answer the rest of our questions. I think we can make that happen. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem. And take care. Be well. I will. Okay. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.